Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. like to welcome everyone back to criminology this is episode 44 this is mike ferguson and this is mike morford so morph we're ready to get into another episode but before we do i want to ask you how your week's been uh my week's been good i'm excited about this episode and how's your week been it's good no everything's good i'm you know working a lot but you said you're excited about this episode and i am too i i think Picking a mix of different types of episodes, right? We're going to do, we've been doing a couple of unsolved. We're going to do some solved. We're going to do some longer multi-part episodes like we used to do. We're going to try to mix it up, but I am excited about the selection of episodes and this one in particular, but before we dive into it, let's give our Patreon supporter shout outs. We had Misty Gal. Kathy jumped up to our highest level and we had Jennifer Stoddard. So great new support, Patreon support. We appreciate that. We appreciate all the support we get new Patreon, the people that continue to support us on Patreon. But then in addition to that, the social media, the telling of friends, all of that is amazing and it helps go a long way towards propelling the podcast. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. Like the mentions on social media, Word of mouth, people asking what podcast should they listen to. Anybody that recommends us is is really appreciated. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, we'd appreciate that. And you can do so by going to patreon.com slash criminology. Okay. In this week's episode, we're discussing two separate cases involving two different women who were murdered in churches under different circumstances. So we have two different victims. One victim was African-American. The other Caucasian. One was a reverend. One was a fitness trainer. One victim was 61 years old. The other was 45. But the common thread between these two women was that they both died under shocking and bizarre circumstances. And their senseless and brutal murders made headlines. They struck fear in the hearts of their communities. I mean, people were stunned by these two cases and they were left wondering if you're not safe in church, are you really safe anywhere? Today, we're talking about the murders of Reverend Carol Daniels and Terry Missy Beavers. Our first case today takes us to a small town in Oklahoma where the grisly murder of a beloved reverend shocked even the most seasoned detectives there. The town had never seen a crime like this brutal murder before or after. Reverend Daniel's murder took place in the small community of Anadarko, Oklahoma, which lies on the western plains of the Sooner State. It's about 60 miles southwest of Oklahoma City. The city of Anadarko, Oklahoma calls itself the Indian capital of the nation, where 44% of its residents are Native Americans. This community of roughly 6,600 residents is home to one of the most horrific crimes in Oklahoma history. 
In 2009, the mutilated body of 61-year-old Reverend Carol Daniels was found inside a small Pentecostal church in Anadarko. She was found positioned as if she was on a crucifix. Now, initially, police released few details of the homicide because of the horrific way that Daniels was killed. But this crime struck fear in local residents, particularly other ministers who wondered if the killer had something against people of the cloth, or was this some disturbed person going around killing anyone he or she came into contact with? When the grisly details were finally released, people in this small Oklahoma community were left terrified and cautious. They wondered who would be next. There were so many questions. Was this the work of a serial killer? Was this a satanic cult? Did the killer act alone or did they have a partner who would kill a minister in such a horrific way? And why the district attorney later called it a foiled robbery at the hands of violent drug abusers, but no arrests have ever been made. Carol Faye Daniels was born on October 26th, 1947 to Theopolis and Charles Etta Dunlap. She was the second of four children born to them. Carol graduated from Central State University in Edmond, Oklahoma in 1971 with a degree in chemistry and biology. That same year, on June 25, 1971, she married Alvin Daniels, and the couple raised five children, Alvin III, Galen, Quentin, Viola, and Raina. In 1990, Carol Daniels was ordained in ministry by Christ Holy Sanctified Churches and was a member of the Holy Temple Church in Oklahoma City. In 2001, she was appointed pastor of Worthy Temple in Anadarko. Over the years, Carol held many offices with Christ Holy Sanctified Churches and was both secretary and treasurer for the state of Oklahoma at the time of her death. Carol was known to her friends and family as sweet and loving. She was the type of person who would do anything for anyone. She loved her children, and she was always there for them. Carol's mother, Charles Etta, said her daughter spent most of her time helping others and went to Anadarko on a regular basis with the expectation of someone wanting to see the Lord. She very much wanted to prove to people that Jesus was real. The Worthy Temple Christ Holy Sanctified Church, originally located at 305 North 1st Street, was a small Pentecostal church in a weather-beaten building in a rundown area of Anadarko. It no longer had a congregation, but Reverend Carol Daniels drove 60 miles from her home in Oklahoma City every Sunday to minister to lost souls. She was very eager to serve and to save anybody she could. Sunday, August 23, 2009, was like every other Sunday before it. Carol woke up, got dressed, and drove to Anadarko. It was a warm summer morning, and she arrived at the church around 10 a.m. to prepare for the day. At 11.40 a.m., retired Bishop Silky Wilson Jr. and his wife Julia of Spencer, Oklahoma, were the first to arrive at the church. When they tried opening the front door, it was locked. So they knocked on the door, they knocked on the window panes, but Reverend Daniels never answered. They saw her car parked in front of the church, so they knew something wasn't right. At 11.51 a.m., Julia went down the block to the Anadarko Police Department to ask police to check on the reverend. Julia told police Carol's car was at the church, but she wasn't answering. 
A few minutes later, Officer Ashley Burris arrived at the church and briefly spoke with the Wilsons before entering the building through a side door. This was at 12.04 p.m. Once inside, he saw the lifeless body of Reverend Carol Daniels lying naked on the floor. There was blood everywhere. Clearly, this was a murder. Burris was shaken by the discovery, and he immediately called for backup and made it clear that the killer was not in custody. Detective James Howard took the call from Burris. He could tell by Burris's voice that he needed another officer down there right away. An ambulance, Detective Howard, and Cato County Sheriff's Deputy Doug Butler arrived at the church. Burris, Howard, and Butler checked the building and secured the crime scene. Another officer went outside and told the Wilsons that the scene did not look good. He did not allow the couple into the church so they sat in their car and waited. Inside, the church was a gruesome scene. Carol was lying flat on her back behind the altar. Her arms were outstretched, almost as if on a crucifix. Her hair had been set on fire, and she had been stabbed multiple times. The killer stripped the body and doused it with a cleaning agent, most likely to destroy any evidence. The killer also kept Carol's clothing, either to hide more evidence or as a grisly trophy. The murder weapon was never found. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, or OSBI, were notified of the homicide shortly after Carol's body was discovered. Around 2.21 p.m., police dispatchers took the first media call asking for confirmation of a homicide. Forty minutes later, two women informed Charles Etta Dunlap of her daughter's death. It was Bishop Wilson that called the ladies and asked them to contact Charles Etta. About an hour later, Carol's son, Galen Daniels of Oklahoma City, called police asking for information about his mother, but he was told very little over the phone. So Galen picked up Charles Etta and the two headed to Anadarko. On their way there, a state trooper pulled Galen over for speeding. The two people in the car were extremely distraught and told the trooper about Carol's death. The state trooper let them continue to Anadarko without giving them a ticket. Around the same time of the traffic stop, Carol's other son, Alvin Daniels III, called Anadarko police, also trying to get information about his mother. Around 7 p.m., a woman who lived in the 300 block of West Broadway called police to tell them she heard, quote, the preacher lady got killed and was put on the altar with no clothes on. The woman asked police for extra patrols in her neighborhood for a couple of weeks. She was frightened because the murder was too close to home. Later that night at around 11.30 p.m., she called police again trying to get more information and claimed that what she heard made her sick and that she had trouble sleeping that night. The woman later claimed she called police a few nights after the murder when she heard a knock on her door at 4.15 a.m. It's not known who the caller was, because local newspapers did not release her name to protect her identity. The first few days after the murder, police released very few details of the homicide to the public. But Cato District Attorney at that time, Brett Burns, told local reporters the crime scene was the worst he had ever seen. And he had prosecuted over 50 murders up to that point in his career. A homeless man named Robert Richardson told the media that he saw a man running from the Worthy Temple around the time of the murder. This guy was coming out. He was covered in blood, and he had a ski mask on. 
He had a knife in his hand, and he was dripping blood. This is what Richardson told the Oklahoman paper. He went on to say that he was at a car wash that Sunday morning when he saw the man emerge from the Christ Holy Sanctified Church. It wasn't until a few hours later, after he saw this man, that Richardson found out what happened inside the church. Richardson didn't make his statements to the paper until days later. He had been drinking, which is why he did not immediately report the sighting. But there were a few contradictions in his story. In a published report, he said that the blood-soaked suspect was black and bald-headed. But he told the Channel 9 News that the man was wearing a ski mask. According to Richardson, police questioned him in the murder, which made Richardson nervous. But he denied killing the pastor. An OSBI spokesperson refused to confirm or deny Richardson's story or whether or not police questioned him at all. A preliminary autopsy was conducted the Monday after the murder, but OSBI spokesperson Jessica Brown would not say anything about the cause or time of the Reverend's death. She wouldn't discuss a possible motive or what evidence crime scene technicians collected at the scene. All she said was there was trauma to the body that indicated foul play and that the position of the body was staged. The Oklahoman interviewed Brent Turvey, a criminal profiler and private forensic scientist. He was quoted as saying that the evidence didn't appear to indicate a cold-blooded serial killer. He said, quote, this is someone who felt they had been pushed way too far or wronged by something she had done. They felt like they had to do these things. But this person was in a complete rage, a blind rage. Turvey argued that a serial killer would have taken one piece of clothing as a trophy, but not all of the clothing. Turvey said, quote, The taking of the clothes was not done for a trophy, but was rather a practical act. The use of a dissolving spray was also a practical act. Turvey went on to say that the position of the body might have been a coincidence. Quote, It's either one of two things. It could have been deliberate. They're in a church. They put her in this position. Perhaps a defiant way of saying, screw you and your God. Look how your God didn't help you. Or it was not at all deliberate, and her body just fell that way. It's highly common to find a nude body lying on the ground with their arms outstretched like a cross. In fact, it happens all the time, Turvey said. On average, two or three murders take place each year in Anadarko. But this murder case had investigators stumped. They had no idea. Who would want to murder Carol Daniels? They offered a $10,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest and conviction. Another $5,000 was added to the reward by Crime Stoppers. When the official autopsy report was released, it showed that the killer inflicted deep gaping wounds to the victim's throat that nearly decapitated her head. Severe lacerations were found on her left breast back, stomach, and hands. Gashes to her hands showed that Carol Daniels fought against her attacker. And then she had wounds to her chest, stomach, and back that were listed as most likely being inflicted post-mortem. As the investigation continued, police looked for anything that could lead them to the Reverend's killer. OSBI tried to pull fingerprints and uncover any DNA, but they had no luck. Video surveillance retrieved from the Step and Fetch convenience store to the north of the church 
showed Carol driving up in front of the church on Broadway Street at about 10 a.m. It also captured a blurry white figure running from the vicinity of the church and crossing the street around the time of the murder. Police sent the videos in for enhancement, but they were never able to identify the person. There were a lot of people out and about at that time, so police knew somebody saw something, but people were too afraid to come forward at the time. Over the years since the murder of Reverend Daniels, there have been many theories and possible motives. The new Cato County District Attorney, Jason Hicks, eventually called it a foiled robbery where the suspects were probably looking for drug money. Investigators started hearing rumors involving two particular individuals who were violent drug dealers. One of them was a woman named Denise Cooper, who was previously imprisoned for methamphetamine and cocaine and had a history of assault. In 2015, a neighbor of Denise Cooper came forward. The woman told police that she witnessed Cooper entering a shed, wearing a black blouse, and holding a knife that had blood on it. The witness claims that Cooper was burning something. Although the woman came forward in 2015, she told police that this incident happened around the time of Reverend Daniel's murder. The witness led police to the shed, and they searched it but came up empty. A few days after this, the witness passed away. OSBI polygraphed other potential witnesses, and even Cooper herself, but no one confessed. In March 2017, a multi-county grand jury took up the case at the request of the district attorney. Grand jurors specifically wanted to look at whether Cooper was involved in the murder of Carol Daniels, and whether she had any accomplices. District Attorney Hicks had another setback when Denise Cooper, who was also known as Darnell Cooper, died of cancer on February 21st, 2017. This was before the grand jurors could hear her testimony. She was on probation at the time of her death. Jimmy Cooper, her son, testified briefly before the grand jury. He told the media as he left that the grand jury wanted to know about his mother. Other possible witnesses were called to testify. One was Kevin Mahan, who was imprisoned at the time, but he had nothing of value to offer the grand jury. District Attorney Hicks was asked in 2018 whether he thought this case would ever be solved. And he was quoted as saying, I look at it this way, it is solved. My question is, will we ever be able to bring it to justice? And I'm not going to stop trying. And more, if I think you have to try to break that down and interpret what he's saying, because he doesn't come out and say it, but just the mere fact that he's saying it is solved, I think you can make the inference that he believes Denise Cooper was involved in this murder. Maybe not on her own, maybe not by herself, but in some way involved. I think you're right, Mike. I think the district attorney feels that she was involved, and although he can't prove it, he thinks the case is closed. Four years after the murder, Charles Etta was interviewed by a local newspaper. She mentioned that Carol's purse and briefcase disappeared from the church the day of the murder, yet police never mentioned these two items. Two men often visited the church when Carol was there. One would play the piano, and the other guy would sit in the back of the church. Carol told the men that they would have to be saved, or they couldn't come to the church anymore. Charles Etta wondered if those two men were somehow connected to the murder. Authorities never commented on this information. In January 2012, 
Charles Etta once again spoke with the media and said that she was questioned by investigators about a person in Chicago, but no name was ever mentioned. OSBI did confirm in March 2012 that they were investigating leads out of state. Reverend Carol Faye Daniels was laid to rest on Monday, October 31, 2009. The funeral service took place at Greater New Zion Baptist Church, and burial was in Arlington Memorial Gardens in Oklahoma City. Over a thousand people paid their final respects to the beloved pastor. At the funeral, friends and relatives were greeted by Southern gospel music coming from speakers and a projection screen that read, celebrating the homegoing of Pastor Carol Daniels. After Carol Daniels' brutal murder, the worthy Temple Christ Holy Sanctified Church closed its doors. In July 2010, the building was torn down and replaced with a memorial in Carol's honor. There is no church here anymore, but what could have been a place forever haunted by the memory of a cold-blooded murder is now a place where one woman's faith and spirit lives on. What it means to me is that people still care. More than two years after his mother's death, Carol Daniels' son Galen says it's appropriate this memorial is in a place where people came to see his mother preach and get closer to God. There are two stone benches, here a marker with Pastor Daniel's photo, and across from it, another marker with a Bible verse. The cross bears the inscription IHS. It stands for In His Service. That was her whole purpose. She was saved since she was eight years old, and she loved telling people. So she loved Christ all her life. This memorial, I think, just gives people a a different feel about it all. It is very, very tragic, very, very sad, but uh, this is just a bit of the sweet. We can honor her memory. The children of Carol Daniels still seek justice for their mother, and Carol's mother, Charles Etta, she's now 90 years old, still resides in Oklahoma City. In 2012, The first officer who arrived at the scene of Carol's murder, Ashley Burris, took his own life inside the Anadarko Police Department. On April 18th, Officer Burris walked into the station, sat down on a lobby chair, and shot himself in the chest. Paramedics arrived and he was pronounced dead at the scene. Investigators learned that he was trying to work through domestic issues. He was only 34 years old and left behind two children. Currently, there have been no further updates on Carol Daniels' murder. Anyone with information on the murder of Reverend Carol Daniels is encouraged to call the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation at 1-800-522-8017. The next church case we're talking about takes us south of Oklahoma to Midlothian, Texas, a community of about 25,000 residents, 25 minutes southwest of Dallas. The victim in this case, Terry Beavers, was different in many ways from Reverend Carol Daniels, But her death was every bit as unusual. Midlothian, Texas has an average of only 22 violent crimes a year, and it's rated 39 on the crime index, which means it's safer than 39% of U.S. cities. The last unsolved murder in Midlothian prior to 2016 was from the early 1980s, when the body of an Arlington man was found in a field near Padera Lake. But in April 2016, 
a murder took place in one of the safest areas of the city, and it is still unsolved to this day. Terry Missy Beavers was born in Graham, Texas on August 9, 1970, to James and Norma Strickland. She graduated from Jacksboro High School in 1988 and Tarleton State University in 1995 with a Bachelor of Science degree. After college, she spent several years working in the retail industry. On June 20, 1998, she married Brandon Beavers. After Missy and Brandon married, she received her teaching certificate in special education and taught school for about three years. On March 11, 2001, Missy gave birth to the couple's first daughter, Hannah, followed by another daughter, Allison, on March 7, 2003, and Sarah on November 6, 2007. Missy was a loving mother who saw to her family's every need. Missy loved God, her family, and friends, and the ocean. Most of her life, she had been a motivator, so it was no surprise to those that knew her when she developed a passion for fitness and wanted to help others get fit. Missy worked extremely hard to get herself into peak physical shape. She eventually became a fitness trainer with Camp Gladiator, fitness company owned by Jeff and Allie Davidson. Allie Davidson participated on the show American Gladiator in 2007, and then she and Jeff started Camp Gladiator in 2008 with winnings from the show. Trainers with Camp Gladiator teach a four-week outdoor boot camp fitness program for all fitness levels. It was this program that brought Missy Beavers to Creekside Church of Christ in Midlothian a few mornings each week where she taught classes at 5 a.m. On the morning of April 18, 2016, Missy entered the church around 4.20 a.m. to prepare for class. When her students arrived around 5, they found Missy dead on the floor and called 911. Police arrived at Creekside Church just after 5 a.m. after answering a call about an unresponsive woman. That afternoon, they held a press conference. Good afternoon. <clears throat> My name is Carl Smith, and thanks for coming today. Um, first of all, we want to offer our heartfelt condolences to the family and the victims. This is a uh, tragic event for all involved, including our community. Uh, this morning at approximately 5 a.m., Midlothian officers and EMS were dispatched to an unresponsive person to the Creekside Church in the 5400 block of East Highway 287. Midlothian officers arrived at the location just after fire uh, and department med medics arrived on the scene and the medics uh, were attending an unresponsive female uh, as officers entered the church. The officers observed a lot of glass, broken glass on the floor and the female, uh, uh, as well as the female. They started to search the building to make sure there were no other individuals in the facility. During the search, the officers found evidence of forced entry uh, into the building indicating a possible possible burglary. The entire building was searched and nobody was found. <clears throat> um, after that, the, the uh, victim was pronounced deceased by Ellis County Justice of the Peace, Bill Woody, uh, and officers at the scene uh, located evidence, again, uh, forced entry. Uh, the victim was identified as Terry Beaver, uh, 45 years of age, uh, from Midlothian, Texas. The victim was transported to Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office. Um, uh, uh, during the course of the investigation, detectives located and collected a video evidence. Uh, the video depicts an unknown male walking inside the church building, 
dressed in police type uh, clothing and wearing a helmet and gloves. Um, we are releasing the video. Uh, I believe Commander Spann is going to do, uh, let you guys know how to get that off of our YouTube channel. Uh, we are asking and soliciting any information regarding this offense or identity, identity of any unknown male uh, on the video asked to call Midlothian Police Department at 972-775-3333. The investigation is ongoing and further updates will be provided uh, as additional information becomes available. The security cameras in the church were motion triggered, but they did not record the murder or all of the moments inside the building. The exterior cameras were not working at the time. The interior cameras captured Missy's killer wandering around the church. Then the camera shows Missy entering the building at 4.18 a.m. After that, neither Missy or the killer are seen again on camera. Over the course of the investigation, police approached nearby businesses and neighborhoods for anyone who might have seen something or had security video, but they came up empty-handed. In May 2016, investigators had a forensic video analysis completed of the security video provided by the church. Experts believe the killer stood between 5'2 and 5'7 and walked with a distinctive gait. They couldn't tell if the suspect was male or female, but it did appear he or she had lighter skin color. The wounds Missy received were consistent with the tool the killer is seen carrying throughout the building, and police believe that this tool was a hammer. They later released another security video taken from SWFA Outdoor Store. This was a business down the street from the church. In this video, a light-colored sedan pulls into the outdoor store parking lot, circles around the building in the early morning hours before the murder. Police believe that it's possible this is Missy's killer. Police search through the Beaver's text and emails. According to one of the warrants, messages recovered from Brandon's and Missy's phones indicate and confirm statements and tips provided to officers at the time of an ongoing financial and marital struggle. These phone records also revealed possible infidelity within the Beaver's marriage. These warrants targeted 11 different phone numbers for nine different people. The assistant police chief of Midlothian said, we don't have information that indicates the killer talked to any target numbers, nor do we have specific information to believe the killer video recorded the murder. And more, if I had a real problem understanding this quote, you know, the assistant police chief says, we don't have any information that indicates the killer talked to any of these numbers that were targeted in the warrant, but how could they possibly have any information unless they knew or thought they knew who the killer was? I found it very strange, hard for me to reconcile. Yeah, the wording in his quote made it a little bit confusing. But I think the key thing to take away from this is that they investigated nine individuals resulting from the phone warrant, and they don't believe that any of these nine people were the killer. Three days before her murder, Missy showed one of her friends a message she received from a man on LinkedIn. She didn't know this man, but both agreed that it was a creepy and strange message. During an interview with police, the friend could not remember the name of the person who sent the message. Police did find messages between Missy and another LinkedIn user that were sent 
in January of 2016. And these were messages that were intimate, somewhat flirtatious. But whatever this was, it wasn't an ongoing thing. The messages had been deleted and the conversation stopped. As with any investigation where a suspect is not immediately identified, friends and family become the focus of the investigation. Police need to be able to rule them out as suspects, if possible. Investigators questioned Missy's husband, Brandon. He told police that he was in Biloxi, Mississippi on a fishing trip when he got a call from a friend in Missy's class saying that there had been an accident. Brandon told police that the caller said, she's no longer with us. They also said that there had been a robbery. Brandon then made the eight-hour drive home and went to the police station. After talking to Brandon, police accepted and verified his alibi. The day after his wife's death, Brandon spoke to the media for the first time. Now the, 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 main, the main purpose here today is uh, solely to communicate to the people in the community and to uh, everybody watching and listening. Uh, my wife was a, uh, she was a godly woman and she was a very, uh, uh, she was very passionate about changing people's lives uh, with fitness and uh, <clears throat> changing their mental attitude towards their body and themselves and their abilities in life. And, uh, uh, you know, personally, I, I haven't involved myself in a lot of what she does, but now that I'm seeing some of her campers, uh, I, I've noticed a substantial impact that she's had on so many people's lives and I'm very proud of her. And uh, I, I just want it to be publicly known that uh, uh, we are very proud of, of all of the uh, passion and effort that she's put into so many people's lives. Um, as far as the, uh, the perpetrator, we don't, I don't know, we still don't know who he is, but I ask, everybody out there to review the video i think you can get the video on the midlothian police department's facebook website uh, look at the video uh, the person has a very distinct walk uh, there's a, just a very distinct uh, mannerism about this person that should be a very apparent to somebody okay um, i don't believe there was a vehicle there this perpetrator, I don't know if he walked into the facility or if he got, I don't know, we don't know how he arrived at the facility, but I'm just hoping that somebody either saw something or somebody can recognize the mannerisms of this person on the video. Uh, it's, it's very important to us to get some closure with that. And, um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I want to, uh, definitely publicize uh, that my wife was a uh, she was a great woman a great uh, a wife a great mother a great friend um, and uh, she, she will be missed by many people uh, but please uh, 
please be diligent as you can and, and, and review the video and report anything to the Middle Earthian Police Department. And I appreciate your time. A few days after the murder, Missy's father-in-law, Randy Beavers, brought in two bloody shirts to the Midlothian Dry Clean Supercenter. Beavers told the clerk that the blood was from an animal. Later that afternoon, the clerk called police to report the shirts. When questioned by police, Beavers said he broke up a dogfight and that's where the blood came from. One shirt was his and the other belonged to his wife. The vet that treated the dogs verified his story. Investigators also learned that Randy Beavers was in California at the time Missy was killed. Both he and Brandon were ruled out as suspects. Towards the end of April, both Brandon and his father spoke at a press conference outside the Midlothian Police Department. They had everything. They had my flight uh, tickets, the rental car that we rented in Gulfport, Mississippi. Matter of fact, when I pulled into my driveway Monday at 3 p.m., I was in a car with Mississippi plates on it. And, uh, I mean, all of that's, all of that's a non, that's a non-issue. Randy, minor thing, the dry cleaner had your shirt listed as a woman's double XL shirt. Just a mistake. That's what? your shirt. The dry cleaner listed your shirt with the blood stains on it as a woman's. Well, my wife, my wife's shirt, had, my wife's white shirt had blood stains on it too. So both of us had blood stains on her shirt and mine. So, because it, you know. So there are two shirts of blood on it. Yeah. The one on the list alone, where's the other shirt? The dry cleaners. So the dry cleaner calls and says there's blood on... I don't know I don't know what the dry... I don't know the conversation between the cleaners and the police station. Okay, I don't know that conversation. But you're saying there are, there are there's, there's blood there, on two there's, shirts. There's two shirts that's got blood on. Okay. Okay. And then, Randy, even though it's brought you this attention, would you say that you're glad that they're looking so closely You better believe it. This? You better believe it. You better believe it. If they weren't, they wouldn't be doing their job, okay? So by them doing this, it tells me that they're being diligent and doing their job on, on any any tiny little whatever comes across is being looked at, and it should be. So that's great. Do you have a photo of that chihuahua? I know I keep a lot of photos uh, of my dog. No. <laughs> my wife would have, but I don't have one. But, you know, but it's just a, it's just a little. That, 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 was like a, <laughs> that dog was her uh, that dog was a very precious animal to her. Yeah, it I was, mean, very, you know. What's his or her name? Huh? Kilo. Kilo? Kilo. Kilo. Can you get, can you get your wife to email us a picture of the uh, dog? Well, we'll see. <laughs> Did you guys talk about anything else with, with the investigators other than the shirt and the dog today? Not really. We've been just sitting there waiting for you guys to show up. So. And I know, Brandon, you've talked with investigators several times. You continue to do that clearly. I mean, how, how many times you, did you say you've talked with them? Yeah. I've only had one, uh, I've only had one uh, formal interview that was early in the early stage of the game. But, uh, and they call me periodically. And I call them periodically because I think of... Uh, I think of certain things that I want to make sure that they're looking into. Uh, I even called them today and I was like, you need to look into this avenue. You need to look at this. And and in 90% of the cases, they've already done it. So, but it's, you know, I, I'm, I sit and I think about, uh, about catching this person. And I think I, I just role play in my mind, uh, 
any possible aids that I can give, uh, but in 90% of the uh, times that I've reached out to them to provide them this information, they've already gone down the avenue. And I know when we talked with you last, you said that you believe she had walked in on a burglary. I need to clarify that. Um, when I came up here to review, now you got to remember, was that on, that was on Tuesday or Monday? When I gave that statement? I want to say it was Tuesday. Okay. You got to remember, uh, no sleep. Uh, I'm in poor, I'm in bad health. Uh, and uh, no, I do not believe that she was, uh, I believe that she was targeted. Okay, that's my opinion. That's not, that's not any information that anybody provided me, but uh, I believe she was targeted. For what reason? Yeah, for why? I mean, uh, evidence, for reasons of evidence, I'm not going to say that. Uh, but uh, there's no reason, there's no reason if a person, you have to ask yourself, if a person's going to break into a church, what are they going to take? Um, what are they there to steal? AV equipment? I, I work in a church. Some of the most expensive equipment in a church is AV equipment. Um, or money from uh, tithings from the previous day. Okay, those are the two things. One of the hurdles in the Beavers investigation came from online amateur sleuths who investigated the case on their own and nearly interfered with the investigation. This came after a $50,000 reward was offered for information leading to an arrest and conviction of Missy's killer. Police thought that these online investigators wanted to snag the reward money. And there were a lot of them. You had sluice running background checks, trolling Missy's family and friends, social media accounts, using acronyms to discuss the guilt or innocence of people that they thought were suspects. The police came out and said they had to follow up on every lead that they received, but there were so many false leads that wasted a lot of man hours, and they also wreaked havoc on people's lives. Some of these online sleuths focused on Randy Beavers because he walked with a distinct gait and his build was similar to the killer's. But then police ruled him out, and these online sleuths next focused their attention on a 36-year-old woman. She was a gas station clerk who stood about the same height and build as the killer. She also walked with a distinctive gait at the time from a work injury. The gas station she worked at was just down the road from the Creekside Church. She had even attended four sessions of Missy's Camp Gladiator class. The sluice found this woman on Missy's Facebook friends list and noticed a picture of her posing with Missy and other Camp Gladiator students. They also pointed out that she got insurance on Nissan Altima similar in make and model to the car in the outdoor store's security video. Police spoke with this woman, but nothing came from it, and she was never charged with Missy's murder. Their investigation continued. Now, Morph, you and I have talked a lot about Parabon snapshot DNA analysis. We did a whole series of episodes on cases solved using this new type of forensic science. And investigators in the Missy Beavers case tried to use the Parabon service as well. They sent them the little bit of physical evidence they had, but the quality of the sample was not sufficient. What they sent in was a partial and mixed profile. What Parabon needed was a much more robust profile. 
Even though Brandon Beavers had an alibi and was ruled out as a suspect, he was constantly accused on social media that he was somehow connected to his wife's murder. Brandon had been declining media interviews, which to some made him look guilty. Fed up with all of the accusations against him, Brandon sent an email to Crime Stories, podcast hosted by Nancy Grace, who shared the letter on her show in December of 2017. And I'm not going to read the letter in its entirety, but basically Brandon is saying that, you know, he wants justice, but he also has a fear of what will happen once and if this person is found and brought to trial, you know, the the emotional aspects of what it would do to him, what it would do to his children. And then he addresses the people that think that maybe he had something to do with Missy's death. And he says, you know what? I'm done. I'm done commenting, trying to defend myself. What he wants to focus on is Missy's legacy, who Missy was. I think more if at a certain point, he just got frustrated and he got tired of discussing the events that led up to Missy's murder or speculating about whether she was targeted, if she was targeted, why she was targeted. And at one point, he asked the question, what if the person that killed Missy enjoys listening or reading about you know, all of this rhetoric back and forth? And I think it's a valid question. But at the end of the day, he says the activity surrounding this investigation is best left to the investigators. They're good at what they do. They are the ones that have the most accurate information. In early 2018, a new investigator took over Missy's case after the original investigator, Cody Moon, transferred back to the patrol division. Midlothian police said that they planned to form a group of officers to come in and start the investigation from scratch. In March 2018, Allison Beavers, Missy's middle daughter, she raised thousands of dollars to help find her mother's killer. She raised a pig that eventually sold for $15,000. And she put all of this money towards solving the murder of her mother. Allison has said that she just wants to be able to support keeping her mother's murder investigation going. She said, you have no idea how much this means to me and my heart. Devastated by the murder of Missy Beavers inside their church, the congregation of Creekside Church has prayed daily for answers to her vicious murder. The church installed a new security system, cameras, and locks, and fixed all the damage the killer did to the building. Police still have no idea who walked into Creekside Church that morning and murdered Missy Beavers, but the investigation is ongoing. Anyone with information on the case is asked to call the tip line at 972-775-7624. And Morph, as we're wrapping up, you know, I think these are two fascinating unsolved murders. Both are different, but they're both very, very bizarre. And in the case of the Missy Beavers murder, you know, having that video footage, you would think that would go a long way towards helping to identify her killer, but so far it really hasn't. And what really sticks out to me about that video, and especially the forensic analysis of the video, is the estimated height of the killer. We talked about it. 
the estimated height range, 5'2 to 5'7, you know, that makes me think that we're most likely talking about a woman that killed Missy Beavers. There's not that many men. You know, the number, the percentage of men that are between 5'2 and 5'7, it's not very high especially when you get down into the 5253 range. I think what's also frustrating in both of these cases is that in the Beaver's case, they have footage of the killer, but the killer's covered by a mask, and in the Reverend Carol Daniels case, they have video footage of the possible killer, but it's too grainy and you can't see anything on it. So that's probably frustrating for police in both cases. Yeah, so really, I mean, if you think about it, two cases where they both have video. We talk about so many different unsolved cases where there's no video. There's very little clues. Here we have two cases where they can see the person that they believe is the killer, but they just can't figure out who it is. And I think for me more, that makes it even that much more frustrating that they have that video, but that's it. That's it for the cases of, Reverend Carol Daniels, and Terry Missy Beavers. We'd like to give a big shout out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for her help in researching and writing this episode. If you like to read about really interesting true crime mysteries, go over and check out her site, TrueCrimeDiva.com. If you like the show and you haven't done so already, please take a minute, go out, give us a rating and a review if you want to. It really goes a long way towards helping other people find the show. And if you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast, or by joining the Facebook discussion group, Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. So we'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Criminology. We'll talk to you then.